Well, how do you describe the Christian life? I mean, if you were to describe what it's like to be a Christian, what would you say to someone? How does the world describe Christianity? How are Christians generally characterized? You guys have heard it. They're high-minded. They're proud. Maybe driven by a sense of duty and obligation to a set of commands. Maybe judgmental. How about just driven by faith, non-scientific, unreasoning, brainless? Someone said religion is the opiate of the masses. You completely check your mind at the door when you come to faith. Is that it? Are we just mindless drones? We've been working through a series on developing a biblical worldview throughout the course of this year, really to exercise our minds in response to a number of developments in our society. We need to be reminded to think biblically as Christians in a society where there are so many competing voices bombarding our minds daily. And now more than ever, most of those voices are increasingly anti-Christian. In the first message, I tried to lay the groundwork for the series. A worldview is a framework by which we make sense of the world. Therefore, a biblical worldview has to put everything in the world in the context of who Christ is. It has to start with him and end with him. We talked about the nature of the church. Our church membership ought to reflect our submission to and love for Christ and his people. The centrality of the gospel, the gospel above all other conversations, should be the primary message of the church. We talked about our relationship to the government, that our default posture to the government ought to be submission, unless they're requiring us to do something that directly disobeys the will of God. We talked about Christian liberty. Our freedoms as citizens of the U.S. doesn't trump our responsibility to Christ to be in submission to him. And recently we looked at the family. No matter what the government says, it is the responsibility of parents to teach, nurture, and train their children in the admonition of the Lord. That's his command for his people. There's so much to think about nowadays. There's so many competing voices constantly pouring thought, philosophy, and all forms of data into our brains. How do we respond to those things? Paul says in Colossians that we are to see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit. Christians, above all, are to think. I remember hearing about a a, a sermon, and that was a sermon title, Christians Think. And that was both a statement and an imperative. Christians ought to think. We are to think actively, mindfully, purposefully about the nature of our faith and how to live out our faith in the midst of so many competing worldviews. We're to guard ourselves against those competing philosophies and make sure we're not being taken captive by them. No, Christians aren't mindless anti-intellectuals who only take things on the basis of faith. We do believe, and we do believe in the faith. I'm using the term the faith in the same way that Jude did as an indication of a body of teaching that was once for all delivered to the church. But is that it? We have this body of teaching that we hold to, and we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, in Paul's words, as we seek to apply that body of teaching. Have the truth, hold the truth, guard the truth, passionately proclaim the truth until we die. Are we really just militant enforcers of the truth? Is that it? Is that what Christianity is like, that alone? Well, Christianity is certainly not just about God creating mindless drones, but neither is it about God creating a militant set of watchdogs to pounce on anyone who transgresses his will. 
An authentic Christian life, a biblical Christian life, ought to be characterized by joy. God desires for his church to be characterized by joy. How often do you think about the faith that way? How often do you think about the Christian life that way, as a life filled with joy? That's one of the main themes in the book of Philippians, and we'll see it more particularly in our section, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. Philippians, we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. There we'll be reminded of the Lord's desire for his people to be joyful. We're specifically commanded to rejoice in the Lord always, and Paul provides us with some thoughts as to how we can continue in that joy. If you want a summary statement, it would be this. The Lord desires that we rejoice in him, thus provides us with resources to promote our joy in him. Let's go ahead and read Philippians chapter 4. I'll start at the beginning and just read through verse 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word, which is true. We thank you that your word sanctifies us. Sanctify us this morning. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Again, if you want a summary statement... Um, for what we're about to study, it will be this, again, that the Christian life ought to be characterized by joy and that God has provided us with resources so that we may remain in joy. Structurally, as you read through these, these few verses here in chapter 4, verses 4 through 9, this is a series of quick imperatives, commands that Paul gives as he's bringing this letter to a close, but they're all related to the theme of joy and together form kind of a concluding summary statement for the whole letter. If you want an outline, we'll see the request, which is a call to joy in verse 4, followed by the reason that we should rejoice, really um, part of that's in verse 4 and in verse 5, and then finally the resources for our joy in verses 6 through 9. So we have the request, the reason, and then the resources. A little background on the book of Philippians. There are four things to know about the church at Philippi. Of course, there are many other things we could touch on, but these are just four broad things. They were largely poor. He references the churches in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8, of which Philippi was a leading city, when he says 
There we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And Paul is just talking about the giving that the churches of Macedonia did as they were hoping to support not only Paul, but also the churches in Judea, the churches in Jerusalem. They gave beyond their ability, he says. Second, they were persecuted. Paul was severely persecuted at the first preaching of the gospel in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, and the believers continued to suffer. He even says to them in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Third, there were some unity problems there. Paul is constantly exhorting them to be unified. Chapter 1, verse 27, to stand firm in the spirit. Chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind, maintain the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And in chapter 4, he encourages them to live in harmony in the Lord. And fourth, they sacrificially participated in Paul's ministry. In chapter 1, he speaks of his thankfulness for them because of their partnership in the gospel, he says, from the first day until now. At the end of our chapter, chapter 4, Paul goes out of his way to acknowledge their gift. He says, And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. So this church participated with Paul in ministry. He knew them well. This was a group of believers who had become very dear to Paul. They also had a number of reasons to be anxious. Paul was trying to encourage them with this letter in the midst of their anxiety with the truth of their heavenly citizenship and all it afforded. This letter was not pie in the sky, everything's going to be all right. He acknowledged that there were difficulties, nor was it just a lesson in theology. This is not just a textbook letter here. This is a letter that he sent to try to remind them of the immense value that there is in knowing Christ and to spur them on to joy as a result. Look again at the text in verse 4. We'll see our first point, the request, the call to rejoice in the Lord. There again, Paul says, very simply, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's the overall command. That's arguably the main theme running throughout this letter. He says it twice here for emphasis. Joy is mentioned nine times in this short letter. He talks about his own joy over the proclamation of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 18. His joy in giving his life for the church Chapter 2, verse 17, he invites them to rejoice with him over this. In chapter 2, verse 18, he speaks of his desire for their joy when they're reunited with Epaphroditus. Chapter 2, verse 28. Philippians 3, Paul talks about having joy in the Lord by being watchful of false teachers. And at the end of chapter 4, verse 10, speaks of his joy in receiving their monetary gift. Joy was on his mind as he's writing this letter. Now, what is joy? Now, how does one biblically rejoice? People talk about joy all the time, right? I mean, there's a whole candy bar out there with almonds in it (laughs) over which we're supposed to rejoice. I don't happen to like almonds, so it doesn't really do anything for me. But the world has its form of joy, and it's usually akin to a higher form of happiness. I searched for the dictionary definition of joy and found this, quote, a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. 
And that happiness tends to be related to specific favorable events. Something happens that I like, and as a result, I'm happy. And when I'm very happy, I can be said to be joyful. But that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is of a different quality. I mean, it has to be, right? I mean, take Paul, for example. He's writing this letter about joy, talking about his joy, trying to encourage them for their joy, and he's writing this letter from prison for preaching the gospel. It's got to be of a different quality. So what is biblical joy? Again, the dictionary definition doesn't do much for us, but I think verse 4 cues us in. He says, again, rejoice in the Lord always. The command is not merely to have joy as if Christians are expected to fabricate joy out of thin air when they're experiencing difficulty or that they should be happy about the difficulty. No, the command is to rejoice in the Lord. That's what makes biblical joy different. Our joy is in the Lord. That it is in the Lord is consistent with Paul's understanding of what it means to be in Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. We are in him. That's Ephesians chapter 1. We've been united with Christ, as Ephesians chapter 2. We've been saved by Christ or delivered from the wrath of God in Christ, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. We're kept by the power of Christ through our faith, 1 Peter 1, and will be delivered to God with Christ in the end. That's Jesus' promise in John 14. As Pastor Chris pointed out last Sunday, as we're approaching our celebration of the Reformation, we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All of our redemption is accomplished and secured in him, in Christ our Lord. Thus, our greatest joy, deliverance from the wrath of God. That's what we're being saved from, God's wrath for our sin. Being delivered from the wrath of God, forgiveness of our sins, hope for eternal life is all wrapped up in him, in Christ. And listen, none of that will ever change. He says rejoice in the Lord always, meaning at all times. We can do that because none of what we said earlier will ever end. It can never be taken from us. None of our salvation will be lost. Again, Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. John 10, Jesus says no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because no one's greater than him. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus is called the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. In Philippians 3.20, our book, Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await our Savior who's going to return and who will transform the bodies of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's what we're waiting for. We talked about that this morning during our Sunday school class. Believers are waiting for Jesus to come back. He promised he would, and when he does, he'll bring us home with him. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. We are now and forever beloved by God in him. He has actually and truly become the source of eternal joy and happiness for us. So again, what is biblical joy? One more thought before I give you my definition. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great American preachers and philosophers, once distinguished between two different kinds of love. He said there's a love of complacence and a love of benevolence. A love of complacence delights in beholding the object of love. It's like why people drive out to see the Grand Canyon. Why people go to see all the other wonders of the world, right? Because it's, it's, 
it, there's something about just being able to hold, behold something that's so much bigger than us, so much beyond us. And we take delight in beholding the beauty of it. There's also the love of benevolence. The love of benevolence moves us to do something for the object of our beloved. This is a parent stepping in the way of a child when the child is in danger, right? This is a suitor giving roses or, or other gifts to the, the beloved, his beloved. Biblical joy is more akin to that first love, the love of complacence. It's simply taking delight in beholding the object of one's affections. So bringing it all together, biblical joy then we see is rooted in our contemplation of and our delight in who the Lord is and all of what he's done for us. It's an arousal of our affections as we take delight in contemplating the Lord for who he is and what he's done. So my definition, one line, biblical joy is the satisfaction that I find when I take delight in the Lord as my greatest good. It's the satisfaction that I find when I take delight in the Lord as my greatest good. When I think on that, when I contemplate that, I chew that over in my mind and my heart. This is Psalm chapter 16, verse 2 and verse 11. There David says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's thinking about the Lord. He's considering the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That's Psalm 100. Well, again, that's the request. We're called to rejoice in the Lord always. I said in our outline, we would also examine the reason. The first reason is implicit in the command. It's a command to rejoice. In other words, this is God's will for us in Christ. Why should we rejoice? Because this is God's will for us. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be filled with joy. And this is not a new command. The call to rejoice in the Lord over his salvation, again, is not new. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 40, 16, let all who seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. Let those who love thy salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. Christ said that he came for us so that we might have his joy. In John 15, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandment, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. And, of course, God has provided the Holy Spirit to those who are his, and a part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. In Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And before we move on any further, I just have to ask you, how are you doing with that, believer? Are you a mindless drone? Is your faith devoid of any contemplation of truth, simply and blindly following whatever you're told? Or do you think often of the goodness of God for your joy? Are you a militant enforcer of the rules of Christianity? You have your list, you check it twice. Those who are naughty are on your naughty list and you let them know about it. Or again, do you let that truth penetrate your heart and your mind and take delight in the Lord of the commandment? 
Maybe you're not either of those, but you struggle with sin and its effects and you grow discouraged often. You think deep down in your heart that if you punish yourself enough for your sin, then you'll make up for it with God instead of, again, resting in the finished work of Christ for your joy. Perhaps it's not sin. Perhaps it's some situation you find yourself in has you down and discouraged, some difficulty in life, whether external, maybe your health, and you think that God is punishing you for something or else that he just doesn't love you. Again, instead of trusting in the finished work of Christ and his proven love on the cross. I hope this is a reminder to you that the Lord desires for you to have a joy-filled life. He wants that for you, believer. He's designed our salvation with the help of the Holy Spirit to produce joy, and he commands us to rejoice in him. Again, to take satisfaction in delighting in the Lord is our greatest good. Well, again, we saw the request in four. We are exhorted to rejoice, to find satisfaction by delighting. The first reason is clear. The Lord desires for us to have joy. There's another reason in verse 5. Take a look again at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Well, what's the point? If we say that the Lord is our greatest good... What difference will that ever make to the watching world if we never show how good he is? If we're always discouraged, always saddened, always angry, always with a chip on our shoulder about sin or some tragedy in the world, always offended by someone else, if we're characterized by that, how will anyone know that the Lord is good? Now, I'm not saying we can never have a bad day. We do have bad days. Paul is about to encourage the believers at Philippi who are struggling with anxiety. Life is not all a bed of roses. Walking around with fake smiles on our faces, saying praise the Lord and hallelujah while our houses are burning down doesn't send the right message. We are people. We have feelings. We get discouraged. We get frustrated. We get offended. But it shouldn't always be that way. The world is like that. We talk about cancel culture nowadays. The world will be quick to cancel anyone who says or does anything offensive whether they say it today or they've ever said anything offensive, and it just happens to come up on social media and somebody posts it, right? That person will get canceled immediately. The world around us has become overly sensitive and is easily offended, and now more than ever, the content of what is offensive is becoming increasingly targeted towards Christianity. And more than that, they are easily offended and quick to insist upon their way of doing things. The cancel culture is about manipulation, coercion, and control. If we threaten to cancel you, then you'll do what we want you to do, and you'll do it our way. But we can't be that way. We shouldn't be that way as believers. Again, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The word for reasonableness means not insisting on every right letter of law or custom, being yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. In other words, and I've said this before, though I'm not sure how much we've taken it to heart, our American rights do not override our faith in Christ. The American way does not trump Christ. Just because you can do something as a citizen of this nation doesn't mean you should. Because you have a heavenly citizenship and are held to higher standards. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If I'm rejoicing in the Lord, taking delight in him as my greatest good, then I do not need to pursue the satisfaction of always being right. I do not need to insist upon everyone knowing that I am right. I do not need to cancel someone else who doesn't acknowledge that I am right. And I don't need to try to be on the right side of history if I'm on the right side of Christ. I want to be where he is. 
that reasonableness, otherwise, again, translated gentleness, should be known to everyone. Everyone should know and experience your gentleness if you know and delight in the Lord. It should pour forth from your character. I mentioned earlier that there were problems of unity in Philippi. Paul is directly addressing this here. It's as if Paul is admonishing them that their conflict comes as a result of their desiring to be stubborn and have their own way. And he's saying you should not be that way. There should be gentleness among you. Does that sound like you? Are you known for being gentle? Would your brothers and sisters within the church characterize you that way? Sometimes we do a good job masking our true selves when we come here once a week and see each other. How about at the office or at school? How about at home, behind closed doors? Would you be characterized as being gentle? If you're a believer, you ought to be. If you say you know and you think the Lord is good, you ought to be gentle. I'll ask again, how will anyone know the Lord is good if we don't show it? We can preach from sun up to sundown how holy God is. We can recite Ten Commandments from memory, hand out tracts on the five spiritual laws, pass out hot dogs and chips to the community during the Fourth of July parade, all we want. But if we're not gentle first with each other and to everyone, as the text says, then no one will ever know that the Lord is good. Joyful people are gentle people. Again, we have the request, rejoice in the Lord always. We have the reasons, God's desires for his people to be joyful. And he also desires for this, uh, this joyfulness to be a testimony to the watching world. And he reminds us there, just in case we needed this last little bit of reminder, that the Lord is at hand. In some translations, it says the Lord is near. I think that's both in the sense that he is near, meaning he's with us, enabling us to obey this call to gentleness, and also that he's near in a sense of his return is imminent. I think Pastor Chris used the, the analogy earlier today of, of Christians waiting for the return of Christ as, as children tend to wait for their parents to come home, right? Maybe they've gone out to the store or they go out to work and the children are left home and, and they're waiting. They know that it's going to happen at any moment. The Holy Spirit is saying here, look, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He'll enable you. He'll help you to be gentle. He'll help you to be kind. He'll help you to be loving and joyful. And remember that the Lord is coming back soon. And all of what we do has eternal implications. So we've seen the reason. Again, we've seen the request. We've seen the reason. Now let's look at the resources. That's in verses 6 through 9. Again, there Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Now, we've all experienced times when we feel like joy is a struggle. It doesn't always come natural to us. And in those times, it seems like a foreign concept. We hear the command to rejoice in the Lord always. And we think, how in the world am I going to do that? One author said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the person of Christ is your unassailable joy. 
And the battle for joy is nothing less than fighting the good fight of faith. I like that. The battle for joy. Sometimes we have to battle for joy. We have to fight for joy. Another author said, when we fight back with joy, we embrace a reality that is more real than what we're enduring. And we awaken to a deeper reality of our identity as the beloved, joyful children of God. There are times when joy, rejoicing, will be a fight. It will be difficult. God has not promised that joy and rejoicing will always be easy, but he does command it, and thus he grants resources to aid in our joy. And that's what we see here. We see prayer, his promises, and his people. Let's look at prayer, verses 6 and 7. I already read those for you. He says there, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. These verses are commending prayer for our joy. He uses a number of terms, prayer, supplication, letting your requests be made known to God. These are all terms and phrases that point to the same practice, the same reality, the reality of prayer, our communion with God, our communication with God. Again, we sang a little bit earlier, what a friend we have in Jesus that highlights that truth, that we can come to Jesus as a friend and we can, we can cast all of our cares and anxieties on him. Peter says that in 1 Peter. He describes prayer that way. Casting all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. As a result, we have that as a result of our new life in the Lord. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that because we have a high priest in Jesus, because he is the one who has wrought our salvation, that we may with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's a beautiful picture of prayer, drawing near to the throne of grace. We're able to draw near to the throne room of God, to his throne of grace, so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help when we need it. I think we all understand experientially what anxiety is like, right? I like this definition. Uh, someone says the word means to be apprehensive or unduly concerned about something. To be unduly concerned, to be preoccupied, to have your mind arrested by this one thing to a degree that it is unnecessary and harmful. Another person says it's sometimes translated with the English word worry. And they define worry this way. The Old English, um, the etymology of the word for worry, in the Old English, the root of that is to strangle, means to strangle. And uh, this author says if you've ever really worried, then you know how it does strangle a person. In fact, worry has definite physical consequences, headaches, neck pains, ulcers, even back pains. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. Worry, anxiety is like that. It can put a stranglehold on your mind and your heart, right? Well, the fact that the Holy Spirit addresses this in this letter is an indication that believers in the church of Philippi definitely struggle with worry. So God understands that his people struggle with worry. Again, Jesus addressed the issue of anxiety and worry in the sermon that I just read from in Matthew chapter 6 a little bit earlier. So the Lord wants us to know how to respond to worry. And of course, there are so many different things that we can worry about these days, right? COVID, maybe you're not co worried about COVID, but you're worried about the mandates, the COVID mandates put down from the government. There are wars and rumors of wars, various responsibilities at work, 
school responsibilities, home responsibilities. I admit that I'm sometimes overwhelmed by the sheer number of different responsibilities that I have, and I don't always respond to those things well. This sermon's for me. So if y'all get nothing out of it, it's for me. I can live with that. Just over this past week, I've been studying for this sermon, studying for an exam at work, preparing for the end-of-year conversations with associates at work, thinking about a thesis that I have to write to complete my last degree, having significant and emotional phone conversations with some, meetings with others, various text messages and emails, all on top of regular family responsibilities. And I don't say that for sympathy. I just say that because I know that many of you struggle with the same things. Life is complicated. There's a lot of stuff to consider. I mean, how does the world tend to respond to worry, right? Sometimes with medication, often with medication. And to be clear, I do believe that there are times when medication is necessary. Our bodies don't always function as they should in a fallen world. Sin has affected our physical condition as well as our spiritual condition. But medication isn't the only answer because we're not only physical beings, right? Often medication is combined with some form of counseling in the world. You need to talk it through with someone. But the world's form of counseling is often a matter of listening to your comments to a series of questions and analyzing them based on a certain models of thought. And they'll often be quick to put a label on your condition based on meeting certain symptomatic criteria. And the ultimate goal tends to be to ensure that you start to have better thoughts about yourself. But biblically, we don't need to talk to someone who probably struggles with anxieties just like we do. We don't need to talk to someone to have our thoughts analyzed so that we can have better thoughts about ourselves. Rather, when we're anxious, we need to talk with someone who's greater than us, who is never anxious about anything, who has both wisdom and power to give us right thoughts about reality and better thoughts about him. When we're anxious, we need to talk to the Lord. Again, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, at all times, in all circumstances, whenever we're anxious, we're to do what? We're to pray. And we're to pray with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? There are so many reasons why, but the simple truth is that if we're actively thinking about reasons why we should give thanks, that's going to encourage our soul, right? If you are in the midst of some discouraging time, some depression, and you stop thinking about all of those things and start thinking about all of the ways that God has been faithful to you in the past, that has to bring encouragement to your heart. Not only that, but Paul says that when we pray, we're given a guard for our hearts and minds, and that guard is none other than the peace of God. You may think, wait, I thought we were talking about joy. Well, biblical peace is about a sense of wholeness, fullness, a settled contentment. And again, my definition of joy was the satisfaction that I find when I take delight in the Lord as my greatest good. If I'm anxious about anything and I stop to pray with thanksgiving, then my soul is made to take delight in the Lord as the giver of every good and perfect gift. As I delight in that truth, my soul is made whole. My soul is able to rest content with whatever God has sent. Both my mind and my heart are guarded through the Holy Spirit by these reminders, guarded by a peace which is unfathomable. Paul says it surpasses all understanding. We're guarded with that peace. This leads us naturally to the next resource. We're given the provision of prayer, but we're also given the provision of his promises. 
Look again at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Al Mohler wrote an article recently about the dangers of social media, particularly on youth. The evidence that he cited was from leaked documents from Facebook's internal investigation, their own internal investigation on the effects that their social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, have on the lives of youth. Part of the concern is obviously the over-sexualization of youth, especially females, and the comparison culture that tends to abound. Of course, that's a problem for adults as much as it is for youth. But there's also the false reality that is set up as myriads of people spend inordinate amounts of time to put forth their best moments, their highlights, until that's all you see of them. They snap the pictures of all the best things that happen in life. And all you see is a sum total of all these really good things. And you think, man, that person's got a really good life. My life sucks. Man, that person's beautiful. Look at that. I I, I don't look like that. And you start drawing these comparisons, and it just brings you down. It's discouraging. It's distracting. It weighs heavily on people's souls. The reality is that we have so many competing voices vying for our attention. There's so much data available, so many conversations about the way things are, so many competing opinions and worldviews being blasted on television, over the internet, on our cell phones, around the water cooler, at work, in our schools, even at our dinner tables. Thought and philosophy is communicated at an astounding rate, and we're all struggling to keep up. Some people, I think, just give in to whatever they're being fed the first available resource, because it's just too much information to process. I was reminded of this yesterday when I went into the store and I walked out humming the song that was playing, and I wasn't even thinking about it. (laughs) But we're just getting all this information and data into our minds, our brains, regularly. And sometimes it sticks there without us even realizing it. How do you sift through all those competing and compelling voices in the world to find joy? Paul says the answer is to think on what is true. He says, let your mind dwell on whatever is true, honorable, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise. You have to be intentional about guarding your mind, in other words. You have to be intentional about what you allow in your mind, because what you allow in will come out. I mean, if I pour water in my gas tank, my car's not going to drive, right? If I eat junk food every day, then... My body's going to feel like junk. Likewise, if I consume good food, valuable food, then I'll be healthy and strong. Let me ask, what is more true, honorable, lovely, of good repute, excellent, worthy of praise than the promises of God? What's more worthy of our contemplation than his promises, his truth? Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or maybe Psalm 1 where... David talks about the blessed man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on the Lord day and night, meditates on his word day and night. He says this person will be firmly planted like a tree by streams of water. 
It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf never withers. You want to be able to yield fruit at any time, at the right time? You want to make sure that your leaf doesn't wither? He says that you need to be planted by the streams of water of the word of God. Again, joy is a satisfaction that I find when I take the light and the Lord is my greatest good. What greater way is there to fuel that delight than by thinking on his person and his work as described in his word? I like this quote. The writer says, The greatest danger in our busy, increasingly post-literate world is that we make little or no effort to think God's thoughts after him, to hide his word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him. We cannot be profoundly influenced by that which we do not know. We must hide God's word in our hearts. We must make time for quiet meditation in the early morning or in a private space at noon, or in a corner of the house at night. We must read and reread passages, listening to the Spirit, turning the thoughts over in our mind, praying over a word or phrase. We must acquaint ourselves with all God's word by reading and listening to it. He says, remember, five passages a day will take you through the whole Bible in only a year. It takes this kind of commitment to learning what God says to counter the noisy input that daily assaults our minds and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. End quote. Listen, guys, turn off the TV, get off the internet, leave the social media platforms alone, tune out all the excessive noise and just listen to one voice. If you're struggling with joy, listen to one voice. Not my voice, not your neighbor's voice. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Spend as much time as you can with him in his word. Sometimes it's difficult to read the word for any number of reasons that may be true. My wife suffers from migraines and sitting down and reading in a moment where she's kind of in the throes of it is just really difficult. That's why memorizing scripture in times of non-conflict and times when you're doing well is important It's significant. That way, when you are struggling, when you're having difficulty, you can call to mind what you've already memorized. Or find a Bible app or some other kind of tool that will read the Word of God to you, if that's what you need, or have somebody else do it. Whatever you got to do to get in the Word. Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace. And when you come before the word, I like what David says in Psalm 119, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Well, again, we looked at the request to rejoice in the Lord. We know the reasons. It's the will of God that we rejoice. And God uses our joy as a display of his goodness in the world. We've been looking at the provisions he left, prayer, his promises, and we get the last one here in verse 9, his people. Paul says, the things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace shall be with you. The world tends to emulate those who are rich. We tune in to hear what the latest actor or actress says politically. We listen to Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, simply because they have a lot of zeros in their bank account, and they built successful businesses. We even and often teach our children to emulate those kinds of people. We give them a vision of success that is the world's vision, maybe the American dream. 
We want to hear and follow those people who we believe have made it. We think that if we listen to them and follow them, then we'll eventually be like them. But for all their successes, do any of them ever really attain peace? Do any of them ever have the joy of the Lord? And why are we listening to them? For our joy, the Lord also provides his people. Again, Paul says, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. He said in chapter 3, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, follow me as I followed Christ. Certainly God has given us pastors and shepherds to lead, preach, to teach, to live an exemplary life before us so that we would have an example to follow. We may have other people in our lives who's gone on before us. I've mentioned my spiritual father often and the impact that he's had in my life. The ways in which we see them honoring God with their lives, whether they're, that we know that they're not perfect, but the ways in which we see them honoring God with their lives, living lives of joy and peace in the Holy Spirit, it is these things that we emulate. Paul says, as we follow them, the God of peace will be with us. In other words, seeing the lives of these saints who are not perfect, again, but who are pursuing Christ gives us a totally different narrative than the world. And pursuing that narrative leads to joy. Our faith is not a solitary faith. We know that. We've read passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, that encourage us with the truth that we're all connected. We're members of one another. And that we only grow together as we together work and use our gifts that God has provided for the blessing of, of us all. We're familiar with Colossians chapter 3. There Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him. To God the Father. Paul puts an emphasis over and over again on our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you with all wisdom and teaching, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We're to teach and admonish one another. It's not just the duty of the pastors to teach and admonish. We're to teach and admonish one another. In order to teach and admonish one another, what? We have to be here. We have to be here with each other. We have to get to know each other. We have to desire to love each other and say the things that the other person needs to hear for their good and not hold back when they, we know they need to be corrected because we don't want to offend them. If you love, you'll encourage, you'll correct, you'll exhort, you'll teach and admonish. If you want to be obedient to scripture, you'll teach and admonish. writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.25, let us not forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another as we gather together. That's one of the reasons why congregational singing is so important. Because we have these hymns that focus on spiritual truth, and we sing these hymns to the Lord to honor him, but we sing them in the hearing of one another to remind each other of these truths. I think there are some who are in the midst of trial and trouble but are too proud to reach out to help. They're struggling in the midst of anxiety 
while there are people around who would be discreet, who will pray with and for them. May not be able to solve the issue, but could at least offer a shoulder and support them through the trials. That's who we are to be with one another. Well, again, we looked at the request to rejoice in the Lord. We know the reason is the will of God that his people have joy, and God means to display his goodness to the world through it. We've also seen the provisions he left, prayer, his promises, and his people. Ultimately, again, the battle for joy is a battle for our minds. Biblical joy is the satisfaction that I find when I take delight in the Lord as my greatest good. Our Lord desires for us to have joy, thus he commands it, and he provides resources for it. I'll leave you with this quote from John Piper. He says, the fight for joy is a fight to grasp and marvel at what happened in the death of Christ and what it reveals about our suffering Savior. If it were not for the death of Jesus in our place, the only possible joy would be the joy of delusion, like the joy on the Titanic just before it hit the iceberg. But we don't have a joy of delusion. We have joy in the Lord, our good and gracious Savior. Let's celebrate that joy, continue to celebrate that joy, and seek after that joy together. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank you.